0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and this week I'm delighted that we're talking about the rather big issue of what's happening in the NHS, both what's happening pre-pandemic and especially uh, what the challenges are now as we hopefully begin to come out of the pandemic. Joining me today are my colleague, George Stoy, Associate Director at the IFS who runs our work on research in health, But I'm particularly delighted to welcome Saffron Cordery, who is Deputy Chief Executive of NHS Providers, which is the umbrella body for all NHS trusts across the country, the groups who run uh, hospitals, ambulance service, mental health services, and so on. And so very much in touch with people who are right at the front line of health delivery. We're going to set a little bit of context before we jump into the um, state of the health service today, uh, perhaps just by reminding ourselves where the NHS was 15 months ago before the um, before the pandemic hit. And George, perhaps you could start just by providing a little bit of numerical context: what had been happening to health spending over the previous decade, and what had that meant for um, uh, for spending on
1: health? The NHS had been facing growing pressure just prior to the pandemic. Over the course of the history of the NHS, spending increased after taking account of inflation by about 4% per year on average. Uh, but that was very lumpy. So some periods it went up by a lot, some periods it gone up by, by not so much. So in the 2000s, we saw spending going up by 5 or 6% per year. Uh, that was followed from 2010 by a decade of actually very small increases. So they were still going up year on year but by more like 1% or 1.5% per year. Um, That had started to accelerate a little bit more uh, in the last few years prior to the pandemic, but still below sort of the 4% figure that most experts think the NHS requires to to meet most of the pressures that it it faces.
0: And What did that look like in in, in hospitals, Saffron? I mean, to what extent were they at capacity or struggling to meet demand pre-pandemic?
2: Well, it's really interesting, isn't it, to think it almost feels like there isn't a world pre-pandemic. But if we do cast our minds back, we were in a place where the NHS was struggling financially. So it felt like funding was incredibly constrained, despite the increases that we saw. And I'll perhaps come back to that in a moment. But what we did see was demand rising and rising year on year. And this wasn't just demand for A&E services. This was demand across the piece. So this was about elective care, routine operations, and it was also demand for, for wider services, including mental health services. So we saw demand go up. We also saw um, huge challenges in terms of the workforce. So if you look back pre-pandemic, the um, vacancy rate was around 100,000 staff across the NHS in England. That's that's somewhere about 9%, which is quite a high vacancy rate. So we had this double whammy, demand going up and a workforce which wasn't – wasn't there in enough numbers to really um, be as effective as it could be, and I think there's one exacerbating point I would put in there is if we also think back pre-pandemic, we were grappling with Brexit and what that would mean in terms of the challenges, particularly for the supply of workforce. So we were in quite a tricky place pre-pandemic, and um, I think that we always say that that. Um, if you're in a fragile place then then resilience is gonna be is gonna be significantly compromised if you're tested, but I don't think we expected quite to see this test.
0: It's quite remarkable what you describe, uh, this growing demand for all sorts of services. We usually think of ourselves as getting richer and hopefully healthier. I mean what, what what's your understanding of what, what's driven this ever growing demand for the services of the NHS?
2: I think there's a number of factors, actually. So I put three things together. I would say that we had we had some demographic changes. So uh, we know, and it's the age, or well, it feels like such a cliche to talk about an ageing population, but an ageing population is what we have, and that does... As we get older, we get less less well, <laughs> and we require more care. No matter who we are, no matter how healthy the population, we do require more care. And I think that that's the first thing that is absolutely critical to remember. I think the second thing that that we have to remember is that there are other lifestyle factors that come into play that that contribute to demand. You know, we've we've got. A society, a population that is actually less fit in many ways. Obesity is growing, and I think also there are huge um, divisions between the most well and the most unwell, and that that kind of ties into the whole issue around deprivation, health inequality. So those who are really unwell um, have a number of factors that 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 mean that the demands they make on the health service are, are greater and we have growing numbers, we had and have growing numbers of those groups within society. And the other thing I would point to um, is the fact that whilst, you know, we often talk about the NHS as a treatment service rather than a wellness service and I think that's true to an extent and I wonder also the extent to which we we were – or have been investing in prevention to the extent that we need to so how how much are we really getting in have we really been getting in early in terms of preventing ill health and preventing those factors that make demand so there are a number of elements there that have really contributed to demand but there's also the fact that as 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 societies grow richer and um As we understand what health services can provide, our expectations also grow. And I think that's another factor that we need to bear in mind here, which is if you if you cast your well, we can't cast our minds back to the uh, start of the NHS. But were were you around at the start of the NHS um, 73 years ago, you would know that it was really about it was about making sure that there was services, health services in extremis for people free at the point of care. So it wasn't about the whole host of amazing and astonishing services that, that we provide now. It was about providing that basic health care. So I think those are the factors that I would put on the table. And perhaps I would also throw in more controversially the... The diminution of the broader welfare state actually and the extent to which we are investing in in the economic well-being of individuals and and that that plays into deprivation i think
0: so uh, and it's interesting you go back to the founding of the nhs it's remarkable isn't it if you look back at the documents of the time Beveridge and and so on they were talking about spending on health maybe staying still maybe even going down over time as people got healthier as the health service was effective and my goodness that's proved to be an extremely ill-judged projection about the future for all of the reasons that you describe
2: it's a really interesting point though isn't it because i think i think that that is um you are absolutely right but i think it's also a sign of the success of the nhs that that we managed it back in 1948 and onwards managed that mindset shift to enable people to think about and rely on a health care service that, that would support them in, in so many ways that, you know, I think was unthinkable pre-1948. I think there's something really interesting around, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't understand that psychology, but I think that something interesting about the NHS almost being a victim of its own success in terms of, of, of the reliance of society on it, which is is such an important factor, but also is contributing to this rising demand.
0: Absolutely, and of course, it's not unique in in that sense across the world. So, so George, we came into this um, uh, this pandemic with, as you described, um, spending going up really quite slowly for quite a long period of time, and as, um, as Saffron has said, that you with with the level of demand rising, that left the uh, the system not terribly resilient we've now had 15 months or so of the pressures um, from the pandemic and you've been looking at the extent to which this is creating backlogs and waiting lists I mean just give us a sense of the scale of the challenge from your point of view
1: that that we face over the next few years it's really substantial so with colleagues at Imperial College London we looked at uh, what didn't happen in the NHS compared to previous years so if you look at hospital data, we looked at the period between March and December in 2020 and compared that to the same period in 2019. And you see that there was just, you know, there were a lot of elective or planned procedures that didn't happen. So those fell by about a third. In other words, there were about three million fewer planned admissions to hospitals during that period of time than than in than the year before. Uh, outpatient appointments is pretty similar as well. So we saw seventeen million fewer outpatient appointments over that period. That is really very substantial, and those are things that in in the in the main will have to be made up over the coming few years. It's not something that's going to be solved instantly, but most people are going to still need that care done. They might actually need more care done if they've become more sick, it's become more complex they're in, they're in more need. and of course there'll be the people who usually would have been progressing onto these waiting lists and needing those surgeries. Uh, going forward over time. So a lot of what the NHS done, has uh, usually does, has been really disrupted. On top of that, we actually saw very large uh, decreases in use of emergency care as well. So whilst it might be reasonable and kind of expected to think that the planned stuff was going to be reduced because of the way you know, the NHS was reorganising itself to, to, quite rightly in my opinion, focus on, on the impacts of the virus, um, there's also been kind of a big de- uh, demand response from patients as well. So over that period of time, we saw just over a million fewer uh, emergency admissions to hospital as well. Um, that is partly explained probably by a genuine decrease in the need for such care. So if people were staying at home more, uh, there's, there are fewer diseases outside of COVID being spread between people. Maybe people didn't need care so much. But there, there is a why that there was a genuine uh, need for some. Some people may really needed care during that period of time, and they're just scared to come to hospitals, and they haven't done so. And that's going to be storing up problems uh, for the future as well. So, all in all, the NHS is facing you know quite a challenge in meeting all of those uh, that extra demand that they you know they haven't been able to deal with over the last fifteen months or so, uh, and that's going to going to be very difficult to manage over the next coming years really.
0: And what can we see at the moment in waiting list figures?
1: They've really gone up. So uh, the last set of waiting list figures in May said so there were about five million people now waiting for uh, planned procedure um, or to, to, to see the doctors. Before those, uh, and actually the, the thing that really stri- is striking is the numbers of people who've been waiting a long time. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there were under there you know there were fewer than two thousand people. Who've been waiting for more than a year for elective care? Waiting list has actually come down slightly just prior to the pandemic because it had been a, a focus uh, immediately before. But now we've seen this, this huge increase. So there's now uh, about four hundred and fifty thousand people who are waiting. Who've been waiting more than a year for these surgeries, and that figure is only likely to grow um, over the coming months.
0: That's amazing. from two thousand to four hundred and fifty thousand yes. waiting more than a yeah. year. Absolutely huge increase. Yes, that is colossal. So, Saffron, what does that look like from inside the uh, NHS? I mean, this must be pretty scary if you're sitting there running an NHS trust. You've kind of you're hoping we're going to get over the hump of the pandemic, and then as George was saying, a vast number of um, uh, procedures and operations and um, other uh, necessary healthcare, which uh, is is just backing up into a huge backlog.
2: Absolutely, and it's. I mean, it's something that that we see playing out day on day when we talk to um hospital trust leaders telling us how challenging it is one one that sticks in my mind is a hospital trust leader who said it was a chief executive who basically said for every for every one person we clear off our our, our list another two are coming in so it's just you know it it could be incredibly demoralizing i think that the nhs is incredibly good at turning its hand to a crisis and an emergency and this is what is now facing it which is how how it gets through this enormous backlog of care and i think what you know what we've seen over the last 15 months has been astonishing so we've seen the response to the pandemic where the nhs was turning its hand to you know, the, delivering the kind of care that it never expected to deliver, but also creating 30,000 new hospital beds and the whole host of um, different types of care in terms of, you know, critical care responses, ventilating responses. So a whole a whole host of, of different ways of delivering care and redeploying staff. And now it's come back into a recovery mode, which is, is how does it get through all of the stuff that that has backed up and i think it's it's really interesting what we're seeing so yes there is the need to to get through the people who need the routine operations we also need to get through the people who need the diagnostic tests and that's absolutely critical and is is quite a logistical challenge um a lot of a lot of the diagnostic care is particularly susceptible to to um being slowed down by um the infection prevention and control, social distancing, which is probably taking out about between probably twenty and thirty percent of capacity at the moment, which is why it's really hard to to get through the backlog. Um, I think the other thing that we have to remember, and I, this is for me a really, really important point, which is that these backlogs don't only exist in acute services and i think if we could take a moment just to reflect on what's happening in mental health services during the pandemic which are have not been much talked about because they aren't about physical health care they've flown under the radar in a sense but we recently surveyed um our mental health trust leaders and um all of those that we surveyed, 100% said that their demand had jumped over the last six months. And over 80% said that they were really worried about how they were going to manage the next 12 to 18 months in terms of particularly around children and young people's care. And they're talking about in seeing increases in, say, eating disorders of something like between 30 and 50% in terms of demand so you know really hugely challenging figures there so it's not just about the it's not just about acute care this is going across the piece and i think that it <sighs> We have to remember that the NHS works as a whole system. It doesn't just work as the hospitals and then everything else working as satellites around it. Obviously we all focus on hospitals, but the relationship with other bits of care is 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 hugely important. So demand growing demand in mental health services puts real pressure on AE services, for example, where you know A and E departments will see huge numbers of, of mental health patients through the door if if demand is rising in mental health, it's much harder, of course, to get a consultation, to get people admitted, et cetera, et cetera. So it has that knock-on effect. And I wonder also here if if we might talk about, I don't know if this is the right time to talk about social care because it feels a little bit like it's the dog that hasn't barked in this whole conversation in terms of, of the impact of, of really fragile social care services and what that means for the whole of the health and the care system where you know flow of patients was an issue pre-pandemic supply of of social care capacity during the pandemic and afterwards is also a huge challenge and you know i think whilst we would you know we know that our colleagues in in social care have really suffered during during the pandemic we also know that it's the key to recovery so um yeah there's some there's some challenging bits coming in into the pot there i think
0: so some some really challenging stuff here so we've got a combination of the the, the, the acute services the the waiting lists for elective um services. Mental health services as you say that's shocking a hundred every single mental health trust saying they've got a big increase in demand I mean that is a shocking yeah. uh, shocking statistic and as you say social care I mean, let's talk, talk let's talk about a couple of those we'll come back to social care but I mean to what to what extent are we inevitably now going to get a, an increase in death rates from cancer and heart disease and so on to what extent do you think the health service is going to be able to, 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 to keep a lid on that
2: that's a really interesting question i think I think it's going to be a long time before we see before the figures show us what 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 the impact of this will be. One of the things I was struck by when george was was talking was about um a and e demand, and obviously that demand went down during covid and I think it's really interesting to pick that apart a bit because is absolutely right that some of it was people not doing the kind of things that require them to rock up at their AE department. So, you know, far fewer people going paragliding or or doing things like that, which, you know, might typically, you know, extreme sports went out the window. So that that helped. I think that some people were more circumspect, probably because they were worried about accessing services, but also then realized that. What they would have traditionally gone to an A and E department for, they didn't really need to. So it, it was a bit of a behavioural change piece, and we yep. really hope that that continues. That's my public sector broadcast moment out the way. But if people can think really carefully before they turn up at A and E because they're still really busy, um, you know. But people thinking, can I go to the pharmacist? Can I can I actually manage this myself rather than needing professional care? Is it a one 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 call rather than going to nine nine nine? That's really Great behavioral change that we need to see locked in. The bit I really worry about is the people who didn't turn up who were in desperate need of care. So the heart attacks and the strokes. I think any AE clinician will tell you that they were worried by the fact that they saw a dramatic drop in the number of people who were blue lighted to A&E departments or who turned up who were um, suffering heart attacks or strokes. You know, that's really worrying because they're, you know, they're they're catastrophic healthcare events that that don't have a slow burn and they need treating. So um, I think that is an interesting factor. And you and saw then, that course-
0: directly in the statistics, didn't you, George? I mean, you, you, part of your work actually just showed this astonishing reduction in the number of people apparently having heart attacks.
1: Well, if you break down the data, it suggests that. I mean, not our work, but other people have shown that, for example, there was a... Uh, big fall in the number of people going to A&E with suspected heart attacks, but there were a big increase with ambulance calls for a bit later on for, for people with, you know, full-blown acute myocardial infarction. So it's, you know, and that, that, those, those consequences have already happened. So they're not things that are going to, you know, be going forward. There's also those things that you were talking about going forward. You know, if people haven't had cancer diagnosis, they get cancer, is caught at a a later stage, that's going to cause problems. And I think that is very, I mean, we've been thinking about how we could try and identify these in the data, and I think actually doing that in a very rigorous way is going to be really hard. One thing I would add to the kind of the the, the worries about the drops in emergency admissions is that they've also not been very equal across groups. So when you look at the decreases in planned services, actually across kind of deprivation or across ethnicity, uh, it's been – Relatively equal, and some groups have been maybe more protected than others. When you look at emergency uh, admissions, you've seen really very large decreases amongst the most deprived patients. So people living in the most deprived fifth of areas were much less likely to go to to, to uh, be admitted for emergency than people in the, the least deprived fifth. And then when you look at ethnicity, there's there's a huge gradient there. So. Um, white patients who a much smaller reduction in emergency admissions than uh, black and particular Asian patients. Now, those are the groups that we know have been hit hardest by the virus directly as well. They're people who they're more likely to have got the virus and conditional on having that more likely to be severely ill. So if they're also not getting treatment for other conditions as well, we, you know, that's going to have really, really severe consequences going forward and, and drive health inequalities. And Saffron, can I return to
0: something that you were talking about earlier, which is the, the, the workforce in particular? I mean, presumably, I mean, it must be the case that, um, you know, you, you said we started off with a large number of vacancies and trouble recruiting and retaining, particularly uh, nurses and other um, health professionals. Um, and we just had a, you know, a pretty awful year and a very stressful year um, and a year in which, of course, a lot of them have been falling sick themselves. Um, and this huge pressure on demand going forward. I mean, to, what, what is your view of the capacity, the workforce capacity, uh, to cope with these demands going forward?
2: So it's a really interesting picture, actually, because I think I think it's it's much less homogenous than it was. I would say so. I'd say pre-pandemic, we were we were talking about the main the main issue was, um the main issue was supply essentially um and we we were a a little worried by burnout but i think that now when we contrast that kind of burnout with the burnout that we're talking about now that pales into some insignificance so um you know i think you know we were worried about burnout then but i think what that what we've got at the moment is is pockets of of different factors at at play so we are the workforce is incredibly tired and you know it, it it's it's another cliche that that i feel you know i almost don't want to say it because that's all that anyone is saying but it's it's actually true you know clichés come from a place of truth don't they and it's the workforce is exhausted wherever in the nhs you've been working it has been an incredibly difficult year and we we know that a number of a number of of staff are are really thinking, what is my future in the NHS now after this? You know, once we are fully through this pandemic and, you know, we've got the stirrings of a potential third or fourth wave, depending on, on where you live in the country, coming. So it's, you know, I think people will hold on for a little while longer. But our fear is that, that there will be a group that do decide to call it a day. We then have... Um, another group who are those who have been inspired to join the NHS because of the pandemic and, and we know that, that you know there's been a little bit of a bounce in terms of of um those those signing up for training places across the board and that's that's really positive, particularly for nursing training. So that's really important but of course that won't actually have any make any difference for another 3 or 4 years so we have to remember that that's a medium term solution to our problem and we have to make sure that there's no attrition rate in terms of those staff who sign up and then perhaps fall away further down the line so but we do have a kind of new influx of of staff i think the other bit that we've got and this has been one of the it's been one of the really interesting bits of Of the pandemic is how, um, how we kind of loosened up a little in terms of attitudes and approaches to workforce. Everything was less rigid. We required more flexibility, more innovation. And I think we've seen a lot of um, opportunities for people to take on different roles, work more flexibly, um, think differently about their careers. So I think we may see a lot of of switching in the future as well, which may not add to the quantum workforce, but might mean that people have a wider set of skills to bring to the fore, which will be incredibly helpful. And I think one of the elements where we really need to see that is where um, we need to see the the workforce working across primary and secondary care and out into the community because we know that there are huge challenges out there in primary care as well we haven't talked about that particularly but we know that that has an impact on on hospital services and and on the wide range of secondary care services so it's a mixed picture in terms of workforce but it's a challenging one and and the thing we haven't got to the bottom of is 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 how we give staff the rest that they really need before they then gear up for what is going to be a couple of years of incredibly hard slog to get to deal with demand and get through the backlog.
0: Because George, I mean, the uh, I mean, again, looking at the the, the the data, I mean, that was already worrying on workforce fifteen months ago, wasn't it?
1: The government has uh, already. Commitments to increase workforce size. There's a well-publicized target of trying to increase the nursing workforce by fifty thousand nurses over this parliament. Um, For all the reasons, Saffron said that that might be a lot harder to meet. um, If you think just after this pandemic, Um, so yes, those challenges aren't new, and I guess there's something that there's never been a great deal of coherent planning as far as I'm aware about how you really expand that and you keep staff and reward them. One element I know we were talking about, kind of rest. The other element is pay. Here we are coming off a decade of essentially a pay freeze or actually a real terms pay cut for for many of his staff. Um, subsequently, there's you know suggested they're only going they're going to get a relatively small pay increase after all of this. Um, that might also frustrate people and 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 uh, lead to kind of worse retention. So we've done some work previously which actually does show that pay matters for retention of nurses, particularly in the hospital sector, uh, where there's way that pay is regulated in the NHS is it's relatively fixed across the country, but people's cost of living is going to be very different. If you look at house prices, they vary massively across the country. Uh, and so people's sort of real pay or relative pay changes quite a lot. And you see that in areas that see very big increases in house prices or cost of living, you see nurses leaving at quicker rates. So that suggests that you know, pay is going to matter a little bit. A bit more flexibility is also something that's important.
0: Yeah, it's quite something, isn't it? That, uh, as you say, the re- real wages um, for many professions in the NHS are lower now than they were a decade ago, which is obviously not going to help with retention. Um, I suppose, the, you know, the question is, what, what, what do we do about all of this? I mean, to what extent is this all about money? And to what extent is it about other actions that government or NHS should be taking?
2: I think there's a really interesting bit here for me about George touched on health inequalities, but I think that this is this is an area where I think that uh, it's been a time of reckoning, really, for the NHS. Well, it's been a time of reckoning for society on health inequalities, but I think it's also been a time of reckoning for the NHS in terms of of coming at looking at the problem of health inequalities from a number of different angles and and different dimensions and i think it's one bit that that it has been the challenge of the pandemic but it's also the opportunity to get to grips with it once and for all and um i do think that that is really important one of the things that we have seen starting to happen is is things like looking at the waiting list and rather than cutting the waiting list by clinical priority so p1 p2 as it's traditionally looked at it's also to cut it alongside that by by health inequality factors like deprivation or ethnicity in order to get a much more rounded picture of of what needs to happen in terms of 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 really tackling waiting lists and getting them down but it also speaks to the need Not only to change clinical practice around health inequalities, but also attitudinally to change and help understand what is happening to certainly what has happened to staff on the front line during the pandemic in terms of, you know, some staff potentially um, not for example, not wanting to undergo the risk assessments that were put in place for every single member of um, the black and minority ethnic workforce so that they weren't put at increasing risk, but not they were very, very clear that they didn't want to see their access to really important frontline roles for them taken away and what that would might mean for their career. So there was there's been some really interesting grappling with a number of issues here around health inequalities risk exposing different groups to different levels of risk and also trying to tackle that head on and really take the lid off the levels of discrimination that are built in to the healthcare system in fact into all of our systems in society but particularly into the healthcare system so I do I do just want to focus on you know I just wanted us to focus on that for a moment because although it's been a huge we could characterize it as a huge challenge it it is also the, you know, the flip side of that is the opportunity for the NHS to get to grips with this.
0: Really hard health inequalities though, isn't it? I mean, and in the end, how much of health inequality is down to the NHS and how much of it is down to the much broader inequalities in in, in society? I think it's, it's probably much more to do with the latter. And I suppose the question is, how can the health system, the health service engage and help? But you also need... Government, local authorities, and the other parts of the welfare state, and indeed the labour market, and everything else, working together to uh, help out Uh, on that
2: one. I think that's true. But if you remember that there's 1.1 million staff employed in the NHS, it's the country's biggest employer. It probably acts as a microcosm of society in a way that no other field of employment does. So I think that there's this definite sense of responsibility amongst trust leaders that we talk to 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 feel that 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 this is their opportunity to get this right now and that yep. it plays out in a way that perhaps doesn't in, in other fields.
0: So clearly one big, um, I mean, absolutely one big priority for the future is dealing with health inequalities. I mean, George, what what's your view about other things beyond you know, pouring more money in that, that, that needs to happen to help the health service deal with uh, you know, the clearly very, very
1: big challenges coming down the road? Very difficult to say. I mean... Uh... With workforce, I think as long as with the funding, I think trust could do a flexibility to use that money in a way that allows them to reward staff or to plug holes that, that they need to, so to incentivize people in certain specialties or things like that where they're, where they're failing to keep people. Um, one problem with kind of uh, with training new staff recently has been funding of training places. Um, for example, the the bursaries for nursing wasn't there, weren't there. So things like, uh, kind of making sure that there is funding for all of that going forward, I think is important in terms of the meeting the demand. I think that is, yes, it's going to be really difficult. It sounds like, you know, hospitals are really going to have to work very hard at this. They're going to have to run clinics at all kinds of times of the night and the weekend to try and catch up with things, you know, and that is hard to do on, as as Safran was saying, on the back of people being exhausted already, um, there, it raises questions about where can you get capacity from otherwise? If you Can you bring in staff from somewhere else? Can you bring in equipment from somewhere else? Uh, should you be engaging more with the private sector, for example, uh, which raises thorny issues in itself? But uh, that's a conversation that's kind of worth having, perhaps.
0: And anything further from you on this kind of huge question, Saffron? I mean, how, if, you, I mean if you're in front of, you know, if you're talking about, I'm sure you do talk about Hancock, I mean, what, what's your ask of him beyond money?
2: So, I think that it, yeah, the money is important, always, always important. But it's, it's also, I think George was right. It's how people are allowed to spend that money as well, and what they can get their hands on for the money. So, um, I think it, for me, you know, we've got a comprehensive spending review coming up later this year. So we will, we will certainly be making a number of big asks in that, and one of them is, is you know a, a workforce plan a proper funded workforce plan for the next 3 years and beyond because without that the nhs really can't plan effectively we need we need to know what's there in 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 the pipeline and understand it and and be able to work with that and that isn't really as clear as it might be at the moment and i think it's been one of the big oversights of policy in recent years i mean everyone says that it's impossible to fully plan the workforce of course it is but you can make a pretty good stab and a pretty good stab means that you get to a better place than than if you don't have one at all so that would be one thing i would say something we haven't yeah, many t-
0: this may be shocked that such a thing doesn't already exist uh, yeah i
2: know <laughs> <laughs> there we are um <laughs> i'm going to move swiftly on um <laughs> the second bit and we haven't really talked about this but uh, I think a lot of the solutions lie in some of the really fundamental nitty gritty issues like capital investment. And I don't just mean bricks and mortar, though, that's really, really important. So we need a we need a healthcare estate that's fit for purpose. So we need, you know, we need mental health patients not being treated in dormitory wards or untherapeutic environments or in places with, features that are incredibly dangerous to them. We need, you know, we don't need leaking roofs or air conditioning problems in in operating theatres that reduce capacity even further. And we actually need the improvement of the overall NHS estate so that we bring it into the 21st century. So, you know, we've got got a new hospitals programme, but that needs to go further and faster, frankly, and that's exacerbated massively by COVID and the need to be able to have hot and cold sites so that we can treat people in COVID-free environments much more easily without slowing down progress with with the the very extensive um, infection prevention and control. So if you've got a, a COVID-free site, then you're much freer to do what you need to do, and that's really important. Another element is, is digital transformation, which we also haven't talked about that much, but that has been one of the... Um, Surprising and important elements of of changing mindsets in people that they can access services digitally, and it's been made much easier, and we've gone further and faster on that. But that needs way more investment. I mean, that is a pure money issue, actually. Um, And then I think that a couple of other elements that are are critically important. One is if if the spending review, I'm I'm. I think we're pinning a lot of hopes on the spending review, but it really has to invest properly in prevention and public health. It's a bit of, a, I would, wouldn't would go so far as to say it's a scandal what's happened um, over the last few years, but public health has been underinvested in, as has the whole of local government, which brings me neatly onto to social care. So a solution for social care would be absolutely fantastic because that would help so many people in so many different ways, as well as providing the right quality of care for people who need it.
0: And we've been waiting for a solution for social care for an awfully long time and uh, we keep on being promised it. I mean, George, you've done some work on
1: uh, the impact of uh, inadequate social care funding on the NHS itself. Yes, so it looked at uh, between 2009 and and 2018, the the big cuts we saw in in social care funding for those who are over 65. In in that period of time, we saw uh, per head funding for social care fall by about 30%. So we were talking about really substantial falls. But they varied quite considerably across the country depending on how reliant those local authorities were on central government grants to begin with. But you saw that essentially the estimates show that there's very large uh, impacts, particularly on AE services in in hospitals. So, patients or people who are not getting social care anymore are turning up in emergency departments, which were already really overburdened. Um, And although actually most of them don't seem to be admitted, this sort of the oldest and the frailest do, that still has consequences for their health. It has consequences for the way that hospitals run because these departments are busy already um and you know it's not it's not a a good way to run a system where if you could have people treated in their own homes you know for, for much more minor things or not even treat i shouldn't say treated they're helped with things that they have you know everyday activity uh problems then you could avoid those all of those kind of problems one thing i would say there though is that we didn't find a lot of evidence that it led to lots of costs for hospitals so whilst uh You know, there were quite large reductions in costs for for, for social care provision. It led to lots of people in emergency departments, but those people weren't necessarily admitted. So I actually find often there's this argument that we kind of, we should save money overall if we can cut funding, Uh, we shouldn't cut funding on the social care system because it costs us more in the NHS. I don't think that's the right argument. I think there's lots of good reasons why we shouldn't, we should fund social care properly. And part of that is the interplay of the NHS, but I don't think it's just the funding. Yeah, clearly the uh, you know good provision of social care is good in
0: itself. And just, I mean, very striking, the number you said there, a 30% cut in funding per head uh, for social care over the decade up to 20, uh, 2018. So we often talk about social care in terms of you know, people's worries about having to sell their homes and pay for it themselves and the structure of the funding of social care, which is of course, absolutely... Vital. We perhaps don't talk about it quite often enough in terms of just the inadequate level of resource that social care has. And those are two different questions. Those are two different issues. Um, and uh, you know, part of the reason I think why government has consistently failed to deal with it um look, saffron george we've be, we've been going for actually way past our uh, allotted uh time so <laughs> fa- fascinating and fantastic as this um this discussion been and and clearly a huge amount more we could talk about which is not surprising yeah, when you think exactly. that uh, you know we, we talk about the national health service and this is something i glibly say quite often i mean when it is 10 percent of the entire economy which is broadly speaking what health is it's not surprising there's quite a lot to talk about and quite a lot of problems and quite a lot of issues but we've covered uh, we've covered an enormous amount today the the the, uh, the stretch that it was under 15 months ago the, the 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 problems that the workforce is uh is facing the huge backlogs that we we're, we're, we're getting the um uh this this big increase in demand for mental health services the the pressure that the social care um system is under so no doubt we'll come back to this uh, this issue um again and again but i mean that's been a Uh, A really fascinating and really quite worrying run around a lot of uh, really important issues. So thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition uh, of the IFS Zooms In. And for all our latest work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk where you'll find a lot on health, a lot related to COVID and a lot related to the public sector and public policy more generally. And to further support our work, do consider becoming a supporter of the IFS. Uh, for just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.